following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. This morning I'm not going to read to you from the Islamic Quran. I'm not going to read to you from the Mormon Book of Mormon. I'm not going to read to you from the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu Vedas, the Buddhist Sutra. I'm not going to read to you from Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species or Karl Marx's Das Kapital. And I'm not going to read to you from Lindley Dodd's Harry McClary from Donaldson's Dairy. I'm going to read to you this morning from the best-selling book in the history of books with over 5 billion, that's with a B, 5 billion copies in print. I'm going to read to you from the most translated book in the history of publishing. It's been translated into over some 670 languages in its entirety and over 3,000 languages in part. It's not only the best-selling book in the history of books. It's not only the most translated book in the history of publishing. The book I'm going to read to you from or recite to you from is also the most stolen book in history. The Gideon Society happily reports that some 85, 81,000 copies of this book are uplifted and stolen by light-fingered people from motels and hotels across the continental United States of America every single year. It's also the most controversial book in the history of books. The mere ownership of this book in some countries can cause your downfall. In some nations, it's illegal to import this book. It's so controversial. It is illegal to distribute this book. It is so controversial. The mere possession of this book on your person could lead to your arrest, incarceration, and in some countries to your torture and to your death. What makes this book the best-selling book of all books? What makes it the most translated, the most stolen, and the most controversial book? It's because it's no ordinary book. The book itself doesn't claim to be ordinary. The book itself claims to be supernatural. The book I'm going to read to you from claims that it is supernatural in its origins, supernatural in its contents, supernatural in its application. It's the book of all books. This book has overturned kingdoms and it has guided empires. It is the power to dethrone the highest ruler and soothe the troubled brow of the humblest infant. One word from this book can put demons to flight. And for those who trust in it, it has the words of eternal life. This morning, weighing one kg, wearing the black trunks, with a reach from here to eternity, direct to you from the very throne room of God, I present the Holy Bible. The Holy Bible. The text I have 
from this book comes to us from 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, verse is uh, chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, in which the author says this of the Bible itself. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That alone, ladies and gentlemen, is worth a whole series of sermons. To think you could read a book, a book you could even buy from Whitcalls, that wouldn't be inspired by some human flesh or vain imagination of a human being with our flaws and frailties, but that you could pick up a book that was written and inspired by God himself through human agents? It's an impossibility, and yet it exists. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. How does God speak to you and I as believers in Christ? He does it through the Word of God. His words are recorded and His nature is reflected in this book, the Holy Bible. To hear from God, you have to read the book. That could prove to be a problem for some of us, as we're going to discover soon. For 2,000 years, Christians around the world and in different places have been called Christians or people of the way or followers of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But there is another appellation that we have been given. We have been called and are still called in some countries the people of the book. Christians are known as the people of the book because it is so central to every facet of our lives. If you're not a Christian here today, and you're visiting, and you think, this is the most outrageous thing I've ever heard, a book that does all of that, I challenge you, if you were a visitor today, and someone has brought you along, and you're not a Christian, grab a hold of this controversial, best-selling, most stolen book, and open it to the Gospel of John, not to the letters of John, That's a newbie mistake you could make. But go to the Gospel of St. John and read that book and you will gain an insight and it will probably change your life. So if you're scared, I would say don't do it, but do it. (laughs) Overcome your fear and start to read it. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him that were made, were made through the Word of God, Jesus Christ. It's the most amazing transformative story that you will not get in any other book. Today we're going to see how the most important technological development of the last 40 years can affect our appreciation of this book. And I've entitled this morning's concluding sermon, Techno God's Shallow Faith, Shallow Faith. Last week we had a compound word which was hyperpalatability, which was excess, excessively tasty food. I imbibed some of that during the week. I thought I'd better be true to my sermon. <laughs> I had some junk food during the week, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not that saintly. I can criticize lots of things and then do them at the same time. But, um, you know, this hyperpalatability when it comes to food, um, I have a word for this week. It's kind of like one of those TV shows, isn't it, where you get a word of the week. Hopefully you got to use that word Last week, when you went out to a restaurant or a cafe or you were complimenting somebody who cooked a meal in your house, you were able to say, oh my goodness, mum, this is a beautiful, hyperpalatable dinner. (laughs) 
Well, the new word for this week is neuroplasticity. <laughs> and you think, oh, come on, Adam. Come on, not another compound word which sounds all technical and fancy pants. Well, it simply means neuro has to do with your brain and plasticity has to do with what we might call transmorgification. <laughs> okay, no, I just threw, I just, that's a word I quite like. In my last book that I wrote, I had that in the text. I picked it up from a, um, a fantasy writer, and I just thought, who loves to use words that have fallen out of um, you know, common usage. And so I put it into the book, and then when it went to the editor, they removed it. I mean, who's the author, ladies and gentlemen? Well, transmogrification just simply means changeability or um, malleability. So in other words, it's talking about the plasticity or the malleability of the human brain. At the early part of the 20th century, here's what people thought about the brain, this grey collection of spaghetti inside of your skull. What they thought was that when you were young, it was very malleable, but the older you got, it started to set like concrete. So that by the time you reached your 20s, there wasn't much that could be changed in your brain. All the circuitry and the wiring was all set, stagnant, and unchangeable. But in the latter part of the 20th century, right into our own time, amazing studies have been made that have contradicted the previous view about how the brain works. And what they now believe is the brain has ample neuroplasticity. How are you going to fit this into a conversation this week? I have no idea. I'll leave it up to you good folks to do that. Um, any ideas gratefully received at the end of the sermon. But um, I'm just thinking of some examples now with my students. Uh, you, you've got an amazing neuroplasticity to be able to comprehend that. Uh, something like that, I could use it that way. But the point about all this is that we now know that the human brain has this plasticity for its entirety. In fact, a Harvard scientist at the Harvard Medical School, Avero Pascalione, he put it this way. He said, plasticity is the normal ongoing state of the nervous system throughout the human lifespan. And this is good news, of course. I'll give you an example of this. If you happen to go blind, you suffered the misfortune of blindness, blindness later in your life, and the cortex at the back of your brain here, the oxy occipital... <laughs> I got my wife to look that up in the car on the way here. She's a, she knows all about She's a nurse and everything else. I said, what's that? The, the, the visual cortex at the back of the brain. And, and she said, it's the occipital area back here. I knew that. So the occipital area at the back here, you've got your visual cortex. And this is what deals with everything that comes in through your eye gates, through the visual senses. And it processes it in the back of the brain here. Now, if you go blind... What you and I would naturally think is that that piece of real estate in the brain, that piece of grey spaghetti, would go dormant. That it would go, all the lights would go out. That's not what happens. What takes place is if you lost your sight, you would then be reliant on other senses more strongly. For example, your auditory senses. So the auditory cortex, the part of the brain that deals with what's coming in through your ears, would start to colonise and create neural pathways in this area that is now no longer being used by your sight. And if you started to learn Braille, as you moved your fingers across the page, you would be creating more neural pathways in, guess what it would colonize? It would start to move in and take over that area of the brain that had previously been used for your sight. I mean, that's magnificent, ladies and gentlemen that we now know that. What that means is that some people who suffer injuries to the central nervous system 
Not always, but there is a possibility that other parts of the brain could take over the function that has been taken away through that injury or illness. It's incredible. And because of all this, there's a kind of good news, but it's not all good news. As you know, that with every good piece of news, there's a kind of countervailing point. Because these new pathways, and because our brain is so malleable, that you and I can become involved in habits and activities that are so attractive to the brain that in the end, they start to dominate the way our brain works. Repetition of action, like muscle memory in sports and other things, or doing your times table, it becomes easier the more that you do it. Produces circuitry that locks us into rigid behaviors. It's paradoxical. This is because chemically triggered synapses that link our neurons program us to want to keep exercising the circuits once they're formed. So once we create a new circuit, say you learn a new language, the brain wants to keep using that circuit. Now, if you stop using it, of course, it might grow over, it becomes less uh, uh, easier to use, but what it means is that bad habits can become ingrained in our neurons as easily as good ones. And this is, of course, where we're heading towards this morning. I think you've already worked this out. Because we're going to look at the internet. The internet, then, has a massive impact on the way our brains work, on neuroplasticity. The internet, whether on our computer or tablet or smartphone, delivers the kind of sensory and cognitive stimuli, repetitious, intensive, interactive, addictive, that have been shown to result in strong and rapid alterations in the brain's circuitry and its functions. You probably never thought about that while you were playing that game, while you were surfing for hours on the internet. But in fact, a change is taking place. Why? Because your brains are malleable changeable and do something long enough and it becomes a habit which is hard for you to jump off. The internet not only cultivates and rewards distraction as we saw last week but it can affect our relationship with God in other ways and I want us to think about this relationship to the most important way in which we engage with God, the Bible. The internet cultivates and rewards a mind that is adapted to shallow and fragmented thinking, both of which are contrary to the demands of Bible, appreci Bible appreciation and engagement. In other words, it's possible to know all those things I told you about the Bible at the beginning. You could have known all of those things before I uttered them this morning, and yet, knowing that you have the most amazing book in your home, on your phone, in your possession, in your car... You can know all of that and that God speaks to us through it, and yet you might be hindered as Christians from doing so because the influence of the internet on our brain. Remember what Marshall McLuhan said? It's the medium of the internet changes us, not just the content, it's the way it works. And the internet, that's because the shallow internet browsing that you and I do is the enemy of what we call deep book reading. It's the enemy of deep book reading. Neuroscientists have been very interested in how our minds work when we read a book or we look at a web page. And in fact, what we do when we look at a book and when we look at a web page is completely different in the brain. It is completely different. So what they have done, and one of the ways they do this, is they've carried out scientific um, observation of people using micro cameras. 
watching eye movements when people read a book compared to when people read a web page. So these little cameras monitor the movement of your eyeballs and what you're looking at. And this is what they have discovered. That unlike book reading, where we go line by line, methodically, people who read the web a lot have learnt the skill of skim reading. Their eyes skim the page in the pattern of a letter F. People start by glancing at the way across the first two lines of a text on a web page. You all know this is true. You see the banner heading, you might read the first two lines. Then your eyes go down in the next few seconds, go down to the middle of the page, if it's on your phone or on the uh, laptop, and you might pick up halfway across what's going on there. And then before you flick out of that page, you will, your eyes will glance across the bottom to see if there's any more, any links or anything else. And then before you know it, you've shifted to another page. Research has shown that on average, a person will spend, and this will blow your socks off, maybe or maybe not, people spend roughly 4.4 seconds on a page. So you get to the page, and you, your eyes start this F-shaped process. So we've got 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004. Next page, 1,001, 1,002. 1,003, 1,004, next page, 1,000. <laughs> not always, but on average, some of these studies show that's exactly what's taking place, that you and I are just flicking from page to page to page, not gathering anything of substance, but what we're getting is fragmentary pieces of knowledge. Now, skimming a text is a really valuable school, a skill to have. I mean, my university students should have that at least in their toolkit. So if you're given a school textbook or a, a series of books to read for an assignment, the last thing you're going to be able to do is to read all, say, four books or three books. But what you will do is you will use your skim reading skills and the contents page. You guys know what books look like, don't you? They're actually, um, they've got covers on them. They've got pages sewn together or glued together. You open them up there and they run in sequence. Pages num numerated one through whatever. Okay, so it goes one, two, three, four. And sometimes books have a prefix with um, I, you know, and I-I, and triple I, and then I-X, you know, it's Roman numerals. I'm sure you guys are familiar with books. They have them in museums. <laughs> we call them libraries. <laughs> I mean, you may have some at home, some of these things from antiquity that were so last year. I remember I was speaking to my daughter-in-law once, and, and we were just talking about some music thing, and it was, it was from something that happened six months ago, and she said, that's so last year. I'm thinking, it's not even a year ago. <laughs> it's six months. Everyone's got to have the latest thing. Um, and so, you know, the book's so medieval and um, from antiquity. Uh, yeah, but people still do read them, ladies and gentlemen. It's a good skill. But what happens if that skill, instead of being just one thing in our toolkit, is the thing that dominates the way we think and read and appropriate information. So instead of just being one aspect of what our brain does, it becomes the predominant thing that our brain does. That we, in other words, are increasingly hopping from one site to another without any deep engagement. Nicholas Carr put it this way. He said it's really becoming dominant at the expense of in-depth, concentrated reading. Nicholas Carr put it this way, he's a very good writer. He said, dozens of studies by psychologists, neuroscientists, educationalists, and web designers point to the same conclusion. When we go online, we enter an environment that promotes cursory reading and hurried and distracted thinking and superficial reading. Wow. 
And that is what all the studies are showing. And that's what more studies are going to show next year and the year after that. It's not going to become any less until we become an entire culture of people who cannot engage with a book that's more than five pages long. I have this trouble. I'm 55 years old. I grew up loving books. And now when I read a book, guess what happens after a few pages? I feel the need to be distracted because of what I talked about last week. But I find it hard to concentrate. I have to work so much harder than I did in the past. Why? It's because of the amount of time I spend on the internet and the, uh, the, the circuitry that's being created lends itself to fragmentary reading and I find it hard to concentrate. And I'm an academic. It's my bread and butter to write stuff that people aren't ever going to read. <laughs> reading a book... It's like the spade that shapes us. It's vastly different, and it requires sustained and, uh, concentration. Because of the hyperpalatability of the internet and the rewiring of our brains to shallow reading, it's no wonder Christians, like everybody else, are losing the capacity to concentrate enough on the book. And when given the chance of the internet or reading a book when you go home, what are you going to do? Turn on Netflix? Start surfing the web? Which is the harder thing to do? I can tell you it's picking up that book. You know it. And in fact, a string of surveys is showing this. Some 3,000 Christians were surveyed, and they found that about 50% of all men and women said that they read less now because of their smartphones and social media. 50% of Christian men and women said that they now read less books because of the use of social media and smartphones. T.D. Gordon put it this way. He said, our inability to read text is a direct result of the presence of electronic media. The sheer pace of the electronic media-dominated culture is entirely too fast. Reading, on the other hand, is time-consuming and requires the concentration of the entire person. If I ever need entire concentration, say for marking assignments, etc., here's what I periodically will do. I will grab all the assignments from the students, I will not sit in my office at home or at work. I will get in the car and I will drive down to where I live, which is Army, Army Bay Beach, and I'll park the car there without any distractions so I can be as efficient as possible and mark those assignments as good as possible. Why? Because if I'm in my office, what's happening on the phone? What's happening in the world? Is Brexit going ahead or not? Um, what's, what's Donald Trump been doing? Are there any tweets that have come through? Before you know it, it's so unproductive because of the distractions, and I have to really concentrate to read what they've written. Of course, this has actually affected the, the quality of essays. If you think about the essays that are being written, they're often, I find, very fragmented. It's difficult for students today compared to when I started two decades ago to provide an argument where everything all links together. What you tend to get, not always, but you get an episodic or fragmented thing here. Then the next bit is another piece of information or an idea. Then another piece and another piece. But the long continuity of argument, linking it all together, that requires a sustained thinking, is, is, is being reduced greatly because of what's taking place, because their brains are so accommodated to fragmented 4.4 seconds. And what is a lot of this content we're distracted by and yearn for every 4.3 minutes we learned last week and spend only 4.4 seconds on before moving elsewhere on the internet on an average of six hours a day? What is all this stuff? Well, I'm going to tell you what it is for me. I don't know if it is for you. I'm going to tell you what it is for me. It's inconsequential, 
mostly, trivial amusements. A Northwestern University professor of communication surveyed 1,300 of his students and found their favorite distractions were social media, 78%, say Facebook. Only 5% of his students said that it might be a blog or forum on politics, economics, or law, the very subjects they were studying. I happen to know at a university somewhere close to us that the people, do, they monitor everything that goes on on the internet through big organizations like universities. And so they know what all the students are doing with their time and the staff, of course. And I can tell you something that may shock you, knock your socks off, that the greater content of what's going on are YouTube clips, sporting events, and social media. Forget the essay that's due on Monday. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that, ladies and gentlemen, is where a lot of this internet stuff is going. It's what we've become, what the Americans call, and I love this word, acclimated to. We've become acclimated to it. Well, what more could we say? If we're being honest, and I'm being, being honest about this, most of this is designed to keep us locked into infantile pursuits, Adam, of no eternal value. Hip-hop artist and pastor, oh, I wanted to go on with this, Nicholas Carr, he, he uses an analogy of, he, used, he said that I used to be, before he got, his brain got changed by the internet, he said I used to be like a deep sea diver, a scuba diver in an ocean of words. Now I have become a jet ski rider skimming across the waves. Before I used to go down deep. I used to study the aquatic world. Now I just skim across the surface, barely noticing what's going on beneath me. It's incredibly shallow what is going on. Hip-hop artist Lee Tripp said this in past, he said, the more time I spend uh, reading 10-second tweets and skimming random articles online, the more it affects my attention span, weakening the intellectual muscles I need to read scripture um, for long distances. It has become atrophied. That muscle, that part of the brain that was designed for that has become so much weaker. And the real problem with all this is, of course, this. It's what we started with. For the Christian life and growth, it's predicated. It's based on. It requires a sustained, concentrated reading of a book that is concerned with spiritual interests and pursuits of eternal value. Bible reading, unfortunately, though, is what? It's incredibly demanding. And it cannot be skimmed or browsed to any great purpose. Oh, that's interesting. 4.4 seconds. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, 4.4 seconds. Oh, that's 4.4. You think God can see? Stop. Martha, just stop. And sit like Mary at the feet of Jesus and give your whole attention to him. Bible reading is incredibly demanding. And it cannot be skimmed or browsed to any great effect. Why do we need to read the book? Well, because this book contains how to conduct our moral lives. It's all written in that book. How to pray is written in that book. How to treat others, even our enemies, is written in the book. How to prioritize our lives to count for eternity is written in the book. 
Our purpose in life is written in the book. What God's like is written in the book. What happens after you die is written in the book. God's nature and character, which you and I are dependent on when the vicissitudes and the capriciousness and the storms of life come upon us, are written in the book. His promises are a craggy promontory of rock and an ocean and a world of storms that we can latch a hold of and will hold us sure when all hell is breaking loose in our lives. It's written in the book. Think about this one aspect of our lives that you and I struggle with on a daily basis, or I do. Our fallen nature, our proclivity towards sin. Jesus himself understood this, though he was sinless. He understood temptation when he was in the wilderness, and he was tempted by the devil. What did he say? The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to turn to bread. And Jesus said, It is written. He made reference to the book, book of Deuteronomy. It is written, Thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. The devil then took him up to a pinnacle of the temple and told him to jump off because the angels would have him. And he said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then he was taken up to a very high mountain and he showed all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan said to him, all these things I give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus could have said, well, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. He did not. He said, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to Jesus. Why did he do all of this? It's because he was modeling something. He was setting an example of how we should meet temptation in our flesh. Just one aspect of our Christian life. How should we handle temptation in our flesh? Demonic powers? The word of God. We need to know it. It can't just be on the phone. It just can't be on the book that never gets read. It can't just be the few portions of text that Reuben puts up on a Sunday. It's in the book. King David put it this way. He said, Thy word, O Lord, have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. My, thy word, O Lord, have I hid in my heart. You've got it in your pocket on the phone. You've got it in the Bible. He's hid it in his heart so he might not sin against the Lord. How can we be the people of the book again? Because I believe we're in danger with this modern technology of people who only grab crumbs and fragments that are offered on a church Sunday service or little things on T-shirts or stickers on the back of cars. That's the type of Christianity we may head towards and we will be the poorer for it. And when circumstances do come, there will be a rock there, but we won't know how to appropriate it because we have become disconnected with this book. How might we be called the people of the book? People who use the internet and social media, but we don't want to be enslaved by it. Of course we have to use it. I couldn't do my job without it. I enjoy many aspects of it. But how can we cut down distraction and cultivate the deep reading required to once again be called the people of the book? These are heart consequences land heavily, said Tony Ranka. But this is where cosmic purpose meets personal discipline. We're called to suspend our chronic scrolling in order to linger over eternal truth. Because the Bible is the most important book in human history. 
Why? Because God speaks to us through the book. Here's what I and many of you need to do and realize. You're going to have to come to terms with the fact that I have allowed and even encouraged the development of distracted habits, shallow thinking, to get in the way of spiritual growth through loving the internet more than God. We need to go to war, take back the real estate of our brain for consequential spiritual matters, including reading, meditating, and this idea of memorizing, perhaps, the Holy Bible. The good news is that the very neuroplasticity that got us into this situation is the very same thing that can help get us out of it. You can rewire your brain, seriously. Neuroplasticity means that you can create new circuits or revive circuits that haven't been used for decades. You can do something about it. We need to reestablish those neural pathways that support and encourage and cultivate deep, sustained reading, free from distractions. What did our man Paul say to Timothy? He said, all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God and woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And it all stems from the book. Breathed by God. Well, we are coming right to the end of our three weeks together. And I just want to say I have loved being here. And thank you so much for your generosity, kindness, and just being such a great group of people. It's honestly, it is really a privilege. I love you guys. Um, I wanted to end, though, on just a couple of ideas. Well, I've actually got a whole list. <laughs> I've got a couple of ideas. Some things you could do to combat this. Because what you're going to say is, Adam came, it was interesting, it might have been intellectually stimulating, it might have even been spiritually challenging. And then you find yourself a month later going, what was he on about? As you're scrolling through the internet. <laughs> As you see a book that you're supposed to read, but you've put to the side the bed and it's been there for six months. You're kind of like, ah, oh, books, that's interesting. What was that song? Don't interrupt me while I'm reading a book. Okay, I'm going to give you some practical things here you could do. And we've done some of these as a family. Um, but we need to be reminded of them. I was just talking to Sandra in the car about it on the way here, that having gone through this series, I've realized old habits have reformed again. Since the last time I did this, every night, number one, every night turn off your smartphone and place it in a room other than your bedroom when you go to sleep. It may be that it's your alarm clock. Why not just buy an alarm clock that does one function, not a multitask phone? That means that when you get up, the very first thing you're doing is not looking at the smartphone. You've already told technology, I'm actually the master, you're the slave. During organized social gatherings, leave your smartphone in the car. Or when people come around to your house, leave it in another room. What you're going to tell those people is, you matter more than technology. I love you and I want to hear what you have to say. This is a good thing for meetings too. I would suggest if you're a boss, a pastor, make sure the phone is off in your pocket, no one can see it, so that the person you're ministering to does not think that you are open to being distracted. There is always something more important than me sitting opposite you right now. No, you are the most important sitting person sitting in front of me right now. 
There is no smartphone. There is no distractions. There's no other thing there to get in the way. Minimize all notifications and feeds on the internet and on your phone or delete them all. I would suggest the latter. Delete them all. If you really need to know something, you can look it up later and find it at an appropriate time. But when those dings and beeps go on your phone, the brain says, do it. Look it up. The strongest person will be weak in that situation. Do not text and drive. You'll kill someone. <laughs> I know, ladies and gentlemen, it's the hardest thing to do because we use our phones all the time. Why can't I multitask? Your brain can't do two things at once adequately. And you're driving a car that weighs up to two tons, traveling at 100 kilometers an hour. And you're going to hit another car that's traveling 100 kilometers an hour and weighs two tons. What's the result of that likely to be? It won't be pretty. I'm always tempted. I'm not going to say if I've given in or not, but I'm just telling you, don't do it. We can, we can see the danger of that. Think of that danger and apply it to spiritual truth. I'm a 70 kg person traveling at over 100 kilometers an hour heading towards eternity. Don't be distracted in that when it comes to eternal things. Next thing, organize one night a week where from 6 p.m. to when you go to sleep, there will be no screen time in the house. And some of you are already going, that's an impossibility. I know. For nearly, for millennia of human history, people have never had screens. But now it's indispensable, life-giving. It's not. You could do it for one night a week. No smartphone, no tablet, no computer. Make it a game board night. You might discover there are people in your home you actually love. Or not. <laughs> you know, with the power, you know, I kind of like it when the power goes out on the North Shore, out, out on the Whangaparoa, and the power goes out, and then suddenly you look up, you like that video clip we saw last week. Oh, gosh, you're amazing. <laughs> um, I said, there's somebody else here. And you have a conversation, you're thinking, why doesn't the power go out more often? Um, if that's not what happens, and fights break out, get that electricity on as quickly as possible. The next, but, but think about it. You could do something else with that evening you, and just start reading a book. You could join a book club that would stimulate and increase your stamina for sustained reading. It doesn't have to be the Bible. It's a, it's a book. You might like a certain type of fiction or nonfiction. Why not join a monthly book club where you get a book and then you have to read it because you're going to be accountable because you're going to turn up and you want to talk about intelligently about the book. It's not a bad idea. You could also start memorizing scripture. You can start a Bible reading program, not a massive one, because I fail at those all the time. I'm telling you, I just fail at them. And what about just a six-month one that's just the New Testament? Or for the next three months, you're going to read all of Paul's letters. It doesn't have to be, you know, the 365 days. I'm going to cover everything from Genesis to Revelation. That's pretty demanding, particularly by the time you get to Leviticus. <laughs> I personally, it's, a, it's really the thing that trips me up. I'm going along fine. Leviticus, oh, <laughs> well, what happened? Leviticus. And then finally, get online. And this is the last thing I'm going to say. I'm going to tell you to do something in complete contradiction. At the end of the sermon, while packing up is taking place, why not just sit in your chair for a second, Put on your smartphone, which seems a contradiction, and buy yourself a book. Something that will reinforce what I've been talking about. Because that's the only way to change old habits. Here are the three books I'm going to recommend for you. The first is Nicholas Carr, the man who really broke this out and started the tsunami of... Uh, reportage on what's taking place in the brain. It's called The Shallows, How the Internet is Changing the Way We Think, 
read and remember. I'll leave these up here at the end. You can flick through them. But as you can see, this book's been heavily read by myself. It's kind of the popularization of all the academic research. So if you like a little bit of academic reading, come and, yeah, come and have a look at this and order it. The other is Andy Crouch's book called The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place. Not getting rid of it, but just putting it where it belongs. Let it not be your master and you be its slave. So this is a great book for, for families, particularly younger families. The book I would thoroughly recommend, and one which I have quoted from in the last two sermons, and this is, we know, worth only, costs $22 on book depository, because I got Courtney to look it up while you were singing. I mean, there's a contradiction right there. All you guys are worshipping the Lord, and I was getting Courtney to look up the price of this book on book depository. Um, by Tony Ranka, 12 ways our phone is changing you. And this is the normal way most of us and future generations, well, this generation is going to appropriate the internet before it's electronically plugged into our brains by a little circuit. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, I would thoroughly recommend this. So at the end of the sermon, why not get online, or as soon as you get home, go to Book Depository and buy this for just $22. And that includes postage and then read it, and then talk about it in connect groups or life groups. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us, that you are merciful and rich, and that we can know what you're like, that we know about your great love towards us, and your mercy, and your kindness, and your justice, and your faithfulness, all because it's written in this book, the Holy Bible, all of it given by inspiration and breathed by God. We thank you for the book. Lord, help me to be a person of the book, I pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.